What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Jackson. I'm live from Trinity University, where we're broadcasting at the 2020 Trinity Sports Medicine Symposium. We have Dr. Ralph Bud Curtis from the San Antonio Sports Medicine Associates. He's going to be talking about shoulder evaluations made easy. So, this episode may be easier watched on the Facebook live stream or on the video on YouTube than it will be listened to, or maybe you can listen to it and then go back and watch it as well. And then at the end, any of the handouts will be found there on that same page as well, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash easy shoulder evals. Again, this is Dr. Ralph Curtis on the Sports Medicine Broadcast with easy shoulder evals. This is a tough talk to give in uh, in, a, um, in a in a big group format. It's better for a small group, but they wanted me to do it uh, in this venue today. So we're going to try to project it so you can see what I'm doing. But I think it's really important to when you're approaching uh, the evaluation of the shoulder for sure, and basically any joint that you're trying to to uh, deal with, that you have a system, and it needs to be quick and it needs to be reproducible. What I what I see is probably the biggest mistake in in uh, uh, in athletic trainers and all the the students that I work with, the residents, the the fellows is that the exam that they do is not reproducible. They don't do the same thing over and over and over again. When I do my exam, basically, uh, I, I don't even think about it. It just happens. And you have to get to that stage, uh, and it keeps you from missing things. So if you see from the handout, uh, the first thing I think about when, when I talk about a shoulder is uh, I get the history. And, and I break it down by age group, and then I break it, break it down as to whether it's truly trauma or whether it's atraumatic or repetitive microtrauma. And by looking at those things, it starts to hone in on what the range of diagnoses may be, okay? So if you see there, uh, younger than 14, basically still skeletally immature, so they have open growth plates. When I think of trauma, if there's truly a traumatic event, one episode that, they, that it happened on this date at this time with this accident, then I, I think about fracture of the growth plate. So when I'm going into my exam and that's the history I have, then I'm gonna be focused in that way when I do my exam, okay? Uh, if, it, if it's not fracture, then it may be an instability situation, okay? If I get to that next age group, 14 to about 30, it's instability. You know, take it to the bank. It's gonna be an instability-related thing. There may be secondary changes of rotator cuff impingement or tendonitis or those kind of things, but there's gonna be an instability basis uh, for the diagnosis. So my exam is gonna be focused on instability. And then over about 30, uh, it, it shifts, okay? There's less instability, there can be some, but it's more likely to be impingement, rotator cuff type of things. So if I have an older patient, with the, maybe the same trauma, I'm gonna think rotator cuff. My exam is focused on rotator cuff, okay? Uh, if it's non-traumatic, same thing. If I've got that younger than 14 open growth plates, well, it's a growth plate problem. It's probably gonna be a stress fracture of the proximal humerus, which may, which may look exactly like rotator cuff tendonitis in the older than 30 age group. But again, in the guys that you guys deal with, usually at the high school to, to, to college level, 
that 14 to 30, it's going to be instability. It may be multi-directional laxity as the underlying cause, but it's going to be instability, and that's what you focus on. Okay. So now I've got an idea in my mind about what the diagnosis may be. I always like to examine the patient in a, in a, in a sitting fashion. They tend to relax a little bit better. Okay, the first thing I'm going to do is, is not arm wrestle the, the, the patient. Another big mistake that I see is the first thing you want to do is grab him and arm wrestle, right? It's like, okay, we're going to do that impingement test first before we do anything else. Well, what happens? Immediately he's on the defensive, and then you, you, you can't be very productive with your exam. So what I like to do is, 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 is first off say, uh, you know, show me where it hurts. Give me one finger on where it hurts. Well, they're pretty adept at telling you what's going on, you know. It's the AC joint, you know, or it's the SC joint. They're going to they're gonna tell me where to look, okay? And I've not touched the patient yet, but he's told me what to look for. And then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do active range of motion. I think active range of motion is very important. So we'll do elevation. So elevation is anything in the frontal plane of the body, and it should be up to 180 degrees. And then I like to do arm at side external rotation, and I always get them to mimic mimic me okay and then I do internal rotation and so internal rotation is really important because a lot of the pathology that goes on in the shoulder is uh, affects the posterior capsule and what you lose is you lose some internal rotation so that's an important test now let's say I'm uh, uh, focused on an exam this guy this is a college baseball pitcher and um, and it's atraumatic or microtraumatic well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get them to go to, to 90 degrees of abduction, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to test external rotation and internal rotation to see where his arc of motion is. Because we know that one of the pathologies in that age group in throwers is that they'll, they'll change their arc of motion. They lose internal rotation, and they gain more compensatory external rotation. So, again, I still haven't touched the patient. Uh, he, now he's getting a little bit more at ease with, with what's going on. Okay, uh, inspection. Uh, at this stage of the game, he's told me where he may hurt or may not. Uh, I can't inspect his shoulder with his shirt on, right? I'm not going to make him take his shirt off, but, but in the office or on your exam, you can't see what's going on if he's got his shirt on, all right? All of a sudden, he takes his shirt on, and not only do you see his, his, uh, his, uh, his tat that he didn't want anybody to see, but he also shows you that he's got... He's got swelling or ecchymosis in the front, which may point to your diagnosis. He may have swelling here on his chest because he tore his pec major. Uh, so you have to look at it, and you, you can't look at it through a shirt. So that's an important thing. Um, so now I've looked. I've seen his range of motion. He's pointed to where he's tender. Uh, if I think I need to then palpate, it'll be the first time that I've touched the patient. You know, I'll hone in on the AC joint or the SC joint, okay? Or the, the proximal humerus, okay, in, in that younger kid. I'm going to do this, all right? Um, so then, I, then I'm going to do strength testing. Before I go to provocative test, I'm going to do strength testing. Uh, strength's important um, in that it may lead you to the diagnosis, all right? And uh, it could be a diagnosis of a neurologic problem. It could be a diagnosis of a rotator cuff problem, or it could be... Uh, sort of generalized weakness which is more associated with pain all right so what I always do is arm at side external rotation and I 
I tell them to push out against me like so, all right? So that's a real um, easy place for them to be. It's usually not uncomfortable for them to be arm at side. And this is the most sensitive, externally rotate against me. Yeah, so that's the most sensitive test for supraspinatus uh, insufficiency, is arm at side external rotation. And you wouldn't think that necessarily because it, the supraspinatus comes in from the top, from the top, but when your arm's at the side, it becomes an external rotator, okay? All right, so as opposed to the empty can, which I don't really use very much, and doing this, come forward just a little. Empty can test just like this, pulling down. Okay, so how much of this is supraspinatus and how much of it is deltoid? It's actually mostly deltoid. So you get tricked by using this as your test for supraspinatus or rotator cuff. So arm at side external rotation is a more sensitive test. Okay, and then I'm going to come to the side and I'm going to do internal rotation, so pull to your stomach, so roll in. So that tells me about subscap, all right? And I still haven't beat him up too much, so he still trusts me at this stage of the game. And then I'm going to do, give me a curl, okay, push me away, okay? And then if I'm really testing for a neurologic thing, I'll say spread your fingers and don't let me pull together, okay? So I don't use empty can much. Elbows up like this, and then deltoid I can test just like so. So that's the testing that I usually do. Um, when you're strength testing, if you're thinking about brachial plexus injuries, and that's something that you guys see all the time, it is deltoid is going to be C5, biceps is going to be C5, C6, okay? Triceps pushing away is C7, and then uh, hand is C7 and C8. All right, so that's important when you're trying to distinguish what you're looking at in a, in a neurologic injury or a brachial plexus injury. So then we get down to provocative tests, and there are a million of them, okay? And I have a basic few that I look at each time. And uh, first thing I do is I'm going to go to the shoulder that doesn't hurt, okay? And I'm going to test for uh, multi-directional laxity. First thing I'm going to do is just put my, my hand on the, the scapula just like this, I'm going to get him to rest his forearm on his, on his uh, thigh, and then I'm going to pull straight down for a sulca sign, right? So you guys know the sulca sign. Basically, I pull down here, and I can feel the humeral head inferiorly sublux. Sometimes I can see that sulcus, all right? And I go to the other side because they're going to be exactly the same on both sides, but if he has a painful shoulder, he's going to fight you, and you're not going to get a, get a result that you need. Okay, then I'll do a load and shift. Are we getting this on camera at all? Yeah, rotate like that, there you go. All right, so then what I do, same position, he's relaxed in this particular position, and what I do is get him to relax a little bit, and then I grab the humeral head, and then I load and shift posteriorly, and I load and shift anteriorly. And this has nothing to do with traumatic instability, it has to do with generalized laxity, which is an underlying cause or an underlying issue with a lot of atraumatic instability, particularly in that 14 or actually younger than that to 35-year-old age group. So testing for multidirectional laxity is important, all right? So then I'm going to go to my other provocative tests. Everybody knows the near impingement test. It's just forcing the humerus uh, to impinge on the acromion in this position. I think it's a really lousy test because 
Think about anybody that's got a painful shoulder. If you do this, what do they have? Pain. They have pain. So it really doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't really illustrate anything for us. The the uh, Hawkins impingement test is also something that we use. Basically, I support the elbow like so. I've brought the greater tuberosity up into the impingement zone, and then I internally rotate like so. Okay, it brings it underneath the acromion. Okay, and that's a little bit more productive test. If he has pain in this arc right there, then he probably does have impingement or rotator cuff phenomena. Okay, so a Hawkins impingement test. And then instability tests, okay? For anterior instability, I'd use a, just an anterior uh, apprehension test. And basically, again, I put my hand on the, the scapula, I put my thumb on the back, of the back of the humerus, I leverage into abduction external rotation, okay? And if it goes forward, they're usually apprehensive or painful, okay? So that, to me, that's the best test for anterior instability is, a, is an anterior apprehension test. Um, there's, there's the relocation test that I just don't use. I don't think it's very productive, all right? And then one thing we see particularly in contact sports is posterior instability, all right? And a posterior apprehension test uh, is sort of the same thing, except you're at, you're at, at, at 90 degrees abduction. You start well located like this, and then you put a posterior force on the, on the humerus, and you see if you can get apprehension as you come across like this. So it's apprehension. Sometimes you can actually sublux them, and then when you come back, there's a jerk, and they call it the jerk test, and that's another uh, uh, body of proof that, that it's posterior instability, okay? Now, you have to remember, though, that if, if, if the athlete has AC joint pathology, just coming cross-body, sort of a cross-body adduction is also painful. So it can be confusing. Is this posterior instability or is this a cross-body test that, that proves AC joint pathology? A little hard to tell, but, it, but it's going to be one of those two things. All right. The last thing in that position is to come across and palm down and then resist like so. That's an O'Brien's test, and a lot of times if you have a slap tear or superior labral pathology, you'll feel a click. They'll certainly be ap uh, apprehensive or painful in that position, and, and in the throwing athlete, I think it's a pretty good test for, uh, for slap pathology, superior labral pathology. So those are the, those are the, uh, the provocative tests, okay? One reason I think that Mark uh, had me do this talk was that, that uh, this year we had a, a situation where we had a kid who had an anterior dislocation of his shoulder, okay? And an anterior dislocation of the shoulder um, always results in the humeral head being anterior, so what that means is the arm is away from the, the, the body like so, right? I mean, they're like, like this. Usually they're cupping it with this hand because they don't want it to move. They don't, wanna, they don't want it to move in internal or external rotation because it's caught on the front of the, the glenoid like so, right? So we go the, through the process of trying to get it relocated, and then now he's like this, and he's going, well, I think it's in. Well, maybe it's not in. Is it in or is it not in? And so the way you find out is, uh, does he have good smooth motion? So after you reduce his shoulder, 
there ought to be good internal rotation and good external rotation, okay? If it's not reduced, even if it looks okay, and he can't fully internally rotate, it's not reduced, right? So in anterior instability, if he is dislocated, he can't internally rotate, all right? And the converse is true about, about posterior instability. Posterior lock dislocations um, in practice uh, are frequently, frequently, frequently missed in the emergency room, okay? And they don't get diagnosed until they go for a follow-up visit and that may be way down the line and then they get discovered. And the reason is, is that when you have somebody with a locked posterior dislocation, what do they look like? They look like this. They're sitting in their sling, okay? They look completely normal unless you get that subtle fullness on the back of the shoulder because it's straight posterior, okay? It looks completely normal. He's right here. After a couple of days, it didn't hurt so bad. So how do you tell? They can't externally rotate, right? So the hallmark of a locked posterior dislocation is that he can't get his arm away from the side. So there's, there, are, there are study after study after study where patients in this situation get diagnosed with, oh, you're just getting a frozen shoulder, you're stiff, go to physical therapy and we'll work it out. And they don't get appropriate x-rays, okay? So in instability, once it's reduced, what does the patient always tell you? What does the kid always tell you? Ah, I'm better. You know, I feel so much better. And then if they can internally and externally rotate, which they can always do immediately, you're golden, you're good, okay? If they can't get full internal and external rotation, we still got a problem. Maybe we didn't get it reduced. And uh, uh, I think that's something that you can hang your hat on. I just said, let, let's go through a couple of examples. Uh, first is anterior instability. If I have this patient who's had recurrent anterior instability, what's his exam going to look like? All right? So um, show me. Yeah, let's, let's go diagonal there. So elevation is going to be fine. You know, internal rotation, maybe a little lack of internal rotation, but, but not too bad. External rotation arm at side is going to be good. He may not like to go all the way back in abduction external rotation. Okay, arm at side, external rotation like so. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's close to the dislocation, he may have some weakness in arm at side external rotation. And why is that? Okay, when he dislocates, boom, out it goes. It hits just like so. Well, what's on the, what attaches to the back of the humeral head right there? Supraspinatus, right? Supraspinatus and infraspinatus. So it's still sore, so they lack a little external rotation power, and that's, that's a hallmark. And then we're going to have a uh, positive apprehension test. He may not say pain, but he's probably going to say, yeah, I don't like that. feels like it's going to come out of place, all right? And almost always, if I bring him over in O'Brien's test, uh, if it's recent and I do this, he's going to collapse when I do, go like so. So that's what an anterior instability exam looks like. All right. Now what about a posterior instability exam? Um, in contact sports, we found that we, we have a lot of episodes of posterior instability that we previously didn't diagnose in years past. But after the advent of really improved MRI and MR arthrogram, we make that diagnosis a lot more commonly. Um, I can say, though, that I have not seen a single time in all my career 
uh, a locked posterior dislocation from contact sports. All right? So, so it's not the same as road trauma. It's not the same as getting an electric shock and, and locking posteriorly. It is always traumatic subluxation. So what do they do? They come in and they look completely normal, all right? And they say, my shoulder went out of place, and the first thing you tend to think is, well, it's anterior. Well, in a posterior instability, I can get them to anterior and not too bad. They may be a little sore, but it's not too bad. But then when I come to horizontal adduction like this, they go, yeah, not too, not too good. Now that they have apprehension in this position. You may even feel it sublux a little bit. And then almost 100% of the time, if I do this, boom, it, it, you know, they don't like it. And in fact, I've, I've actually dislocated or subluxated more than one kid when I was trying to prove that that was the diagnosis. And they really, uh, they get pretty apprehensive uh, being around you at that point. So, so that's what posterior looks like as opposed to anterior, okay? Now, what about a, a slap tear, okay? Part of it is, part of it is uh, uh, based upon your history. There wasn't one clear-cut trauma. When I say trauma, trauma doesn't mean, uh, well, how'd you hurt your shoulder? And they go, well, you know, I think it was probably that I, I did bench press a bunch of times. Right? You know, that's not trauma. Trauma, a true trauma is on this date at this time in the third quarter of the second play, I whacked my shoulder and from that point forward it was, it was bad. That's trauma. Otherwise, everything else is microtraumatic or atraumatic. So if you have, you know, 14 to 30 year old and they have repeti repetitive trauma or microtrauma, whether it's throwing, whether it's swimming, whether it's spiking a volleyball, then you can end up with a slap tear. Slap tear is superior labrum. It's very similar in its presentation to, to traumatic posterior. So uh, this is not usually so painful, but the O'Brien's test, just like so, boom, is always super weak. They're almost always weak in external rotation, so don't let me push in, so he collapses there, okay? All right, and then when I'm doing my posterior apprehension, if I bring it up just a little bit and go from up to down like so, sometimes I can catch the posterior labrum and they'll, they'll feel and you'll feel a click in that position, okay? So that click test is something that I use. And it, it's not always there, but that's something that, that can be beneficial, all right? So a slap lesion. Now, rotator cuff tear. What's a rotator cuff tear look like, okay? Uh, a lot of times a rotator cuff tear normal motion, right? But virtually every single time, arm at side external rotation is weak on that side. So comparing side to side, it's weak. Empty can is, a lot of times is normal. Maybe a little weak, maybe a little painful, but, but your deltoid can overpower the cuff virtually every time. So arm at side external rotation, okay? The Hawkins test is usually positive, okay? So internal rotation reinforcement test or the Hawking test is, is usually positive, okay? So the last thing I said uh, on my list there, and then we'll, I'll take some questions, um, is distinguishing bet between a brachial plexus injury, a burner, and a cervical disc, okay? Because there's a, there's a huge difference in the potential outcomes for those two. And it's really important for you to make that that, that subtle uh, distinction between 
upper trunk brachial plexus injury, and a cervical disc injury, right? So when you, when you have a burner, head goes this way, shoulder goes down, and it stretches the top part of the, the brachial plexus first, right? So that starts with C5, and then, it, then C6, but C7 is at the bottom, C8 at the bottom, so those are usually not affected. So you're gonna see weakness in C5 and C6 distribution. So C5 and C6, all right? Deltoid's gonna be weak, okay? And then arm at side, the external rotators, weak, okay? And then when you get down to C6, it's biceps. So if it's really intense, then you may have biceps weakness side to side. And you gotta test side to side to pick up subtle weaknesses, okay? So as opposed to if you have a cervical disc, and let's like, say we have a C7 cervical disc, what's the athlete tell you? My head went this way, my shoulder went down, I got a zing down my arm, and it's exactly the same history as if they have a brachial plexus burner. But the exam's different, right? So I do this, it's not so bad. You know, they're strong, all right? I do this, and they're strong, you know? Biceps, maybe a little weakness of biceps, but now push me with the triceps totally weak, okay? And then down here like so, all right, spread them apart, hold it, so C8's okay. So C7 is not a brachial plexus burner, right? And so we've proven that five, six, okay, C7 not good, you gotta look at his neck. He's either got a fracture or he's got a cervical disc. And, uh, and that's a much more serious situation that needs immediate referral to a neurosurgeon, okay? Brachial plexus, as we all know, usually gets well. You just give it time, we don't do very much with it, okay? So that's something you want to distinguish on exam. All right, that's all I have then. Thank you for coming, and, and uh, we appreciate your attendance. Thank you. Again, this is Dr. Ralph Bud Curtis from the Sports Medicine Associates of San Antonio, live at the Trinity University 2020 conference. I would love for you to join me next year at the conference here in San Antonio, usually held the first week or so in January. Again, more information will come on that, but check it out. Again, this is easy shoulder evals. So sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash easy shoulder evals, where I'll have the video, the Facebook live, so you can see what he was doing as he was doing it. And again, uh, hoist has supported us here, so if you want to order hoist, you can use the SMB to order your hoist. And again, live from Trinity University, that is a wrap.